Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapinia. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We're always so glad that you can join us. And remember, if you ever miss an episode, you can always find them online. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Or you can catch us on your favorite podcast app or on our YouTube channel. Jason, who are we speaking with this week? Well, we really have one of the distinguished theological heavy hitters of the Catholic world, Dr. John Cavadini, former chair of theology at the University of Notre Dame, member of the International Theological Commission, and a consultant to the USCCB's Committee on Doctrine. He wrote a very fine article in Church Life Journal about the influence of St. Francis and St. Augustine on Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, which we really uh, tried to translate into a Minnesota context here. In Min- in, and uh, so it's great to keep talking and continuing that conversation about that important encyclical. Wonderful. It'll be really interesting to hear more about the, the different saints' influences. Uh, you know, St. Francis, St. Augustine, they're not exactly similar in a lot of ways, but uh, I'll be interested to hear what unique contributions he think, seems to think they have on the on the document. So remember everyone, if you ever miss an episode, again, go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. And if you ever have an idea for a show topic, send me an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org, or you can just leave us a comment on our YouTube channel. I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I am now joined by Dr. John Cavadini. He is professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, a distinguished scholar, and he teaches and studies and publishes in the area of patristic theology and its early medieval reception. He has served as a consultant to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Doctrine since 2006 and served a five-year term on the International Theological Commission appointed by Pope Benedict XVI. In 2018, he received the Monica Helwig Award from the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities for Outstanding Contributions to Catholic Intellectual Life. Dr. Cavadini, it's great to speak with you today. Thanks for coming on The Bridge Builder. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Well, we were really taken with your uh, article in Church Life Journal, and you wrote about the two saints uh, who you thought were influential on the composition of Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. St. Francis, which everyone knows which, because of the title of the encyclical, Laudato Si, O Mi Signore, but also uh, St. Augustine. And that's, uh, we want to really dig into that as well. But first, I think I'd like to ask, you know, of what relevance are the saints to political and social questions today? I think there's a sense that, well, the saints are kind of models of holiness and, you know, someone who can inspire me. But as this encyclical makes clear, the saints have a lot to teach us even about social and political questions. Yeah, the saints, even if they aren't social and political theorists, their way of being and their witness in the world has social and political implications. I can't imagine one that had even more social and political implication than St. Francis and his movement you know, towards voluntary poverty. It was hugely influential, even though he had no social theory. Mm-hmm. So let's dig into that. Pope Francis is in, certainly inspired by St. Francis in the construction of this encyclical. And, and you argue that poverty and the ecological crisis are connected. And that's a key theme of Pope Francis's encyclical. Why does Pope Francis believed that, and why does St. Francis inform his analysis of that question and that very famous statement that everything is connected, including poverty and the ecological crisis? 
I think I would put it this way. It, it all depends on how you value things and the kind of worth that you see in things. This is Pope Francis, and I think he's very accurately channeling, you might say, the, the spirit of St. Francis. If you, if you tend to value things according to how useful they are to you, then you will tend to disregard, abuse, cast away, throw away things that seem to you to be useless. And so you will, you will tend to evaluate them as useless. And that goes for everything around you. That goes for other human beings as much as for what we call the environment, but what, say, what Pope Francis calls our common home. And so it's, it's that tendency to ev evaluate things by how useful they are on a personal calculus that I think makes Pope Francis see the, this connection between environmental issues and, and social issues related to the poor. You quote Francis in Laudato Si and with the, the following statement, the poverty and austerity of St. Francis were no mere veneer or asceticism, but something much more radical, a refusal to turn reality into an object simply to be used and controlled. And that's what you were alluding to a moment ago. Is Pope Francis saying here that there's a connection between material and spiritual poverty and our individual and social response to the ecological crisis? Yeah, I, I think what he's saying here is that when he says it's not merely ascetical, what he means there is Pope, uh, St. Francis didn't undertake his life of voluntary poverty as a kind of personal discipline ordered towards that very end of personal discipline. He undertook it as a discipline of love, as a discipline of revaluing. So he thought of his voluntary poverty as imitating the poverty of Jesus Christ, the poor crucified, as he called him, Jesus Christ hanging naked on the cross, owning nothing, so that the one who, in a sense, owns the whole universe, right, the creator of everything, when he came among us, did not come among us as an owner, but came among us as renouncing any claim to ownership and revealing that the creator's love is not based on a claim to ownership. It's based in a sense on a renunciation of that claim as we understand it, so that value is not related to ownership or the potential to own. Value is related to creatures because they're God's creatures in and of themselves before any possibility of ownership or use. So I think he's trying to show us that Pope Francis isn't some sort of self-centered navel-gazing as it were, um, ascetic, but someone whose asceticism, whose discipline is a discipline of following and loving and reevaluating. And I want to dig into that theme of discipline of love inspired by the poverty of Christ and the cross, poverty of the incarnate word. And you note that St. Francis is extending a, an understanding of the poverty of the incarnate word really extends to his treatment of the poor and even the lowliest creatures. And here we recall the the words from the Good Friday meditation, you know, I'm a worm and no man. And there's a parallel there and a connection to even the lowliest creatures, the worms. Uh, say a little bit more about that. I thought that was a really intriguing part of your essay. Well, it, it, it comes from the part of the first life of St. Francis by Thomas of Solano, where Francis was, um, you know, talks about how he even glowed with tender affection towards the lowest creatures like worms, and that he would stop to move them out of, the, he would stop and pick them up and move them out of the road so people wouldn't step on them, because he remembered that it was said of our Savior, I am a worm and no man, which is a, a psalm 
verse that was applied to Jesus on the cross. Jesus mm -hmm. himself um, didn't quote that verse, but Psalm 22, he did quote. You know, you have to think about what does it mean to move worms out of the road? It's a big waste of time if you've ever tried. <laughs> it's so, like, worms are the most useless, seemingly, thing. And that you would waste your time to move one out of the road. Well, that waste of time, quote unquote, is a sacrifice, right? So to see things differently, right, to revalue things requires a sacrifice on our part. And that's what, what Francis had his eyes on, the sacrifice of Christ. So being formed in the self-giving of Christ means, in a sense, being willing to pay the price of renewed vision, the price of seeing things, not just as how we can use them, because it is a sacrifice to learn to see this way. But what St. Francis is teaching us and what Pope Francis is channeling, I think, is that this is a sacrifice of love. You know, it's not just a self-torturing mass. It's a sacrifice. The more you go get into it, it's a sacrifice in which the love of the creator becomes more and more clear to you. And you're willing to say, brother, son, sister, moon, because somehow there's a bond of love that connects you, not that they're persons, but the personal address means there's more to them than my use of them. As though those things that have goodness in and of themselves by their very nature, not because they're subservient to some ends of the human person. Exactly. Like fire, which he says, it lights the night. So it's true. Fire is useful. But Brother Fire is also robust and playful and strong. And so it has a beauty to it that if you're open to seeing it, if you're open to making the sacrifice of not just thinking of fire as useful, but as something more than that, you tap into the very thing from which this whole universe emerged, from the love from which this whole universe emerged. And that's the doctrine of creation, right? It's not a scientific theory or a replacement for one. It's rather that this whole creation emerged from God's love and in a sense was a sacrifice on his part you know, a commitment of caring. He doesn't have to create, but out of his love, he wants there to be other selves who are free. And in a sense, creation is the moment of investment of himself binding himself to us. And when we bind ourselves to others, valuing them beyond our ownership or use, we're tapping into the very love out of which this whole thing emerged. And to bind oneself, religion from the Latin religare to bind, that's right? That's, that's a good point. Yeah, true, true religion. You you mentioned creation, and that recalled to my mind another portion of your essay in which it's important to define our terms and the difference with which we look at the ecological crisis and all of creation. You know, calling something the created order versus the environment. You know, why do terms make a difference in that regard? Well, because they're value laden. So nature in some ways, you could say is a, it's a value neutral term. In some ways, it's descriptive. It's that which arises, that which comes about. But you know what? That also makes it vulnerable because it makes it seem as though it's just a thing. It's an object. It's the meaning that it has is supplied by us on its own. It's just uninterpreted. It's raw material. Way, right. And so in a sense, it makes it vulnerable. But calling it creation... Well, the vulnerability is still there. It, it, if you just think of it as nature, as an object where we supply the meaning, what, what it means, it's totally vulnerable to our designs on it. But if you think of it as creation, 
in one sense, it's the same, it has the same vulnerability. As we see, we can trash it. But the more you're open to its being creation, the more you're open to a certain resistance to the trashing because you're open to looking at it as though we're not, the meaning of it didn't just come from us. The meaning of it comes from God and God's love for it. So that you begin to open your heart to something more than the meaning you supply to nature. So we stop looking at it as, you know, in some of the words of the so-called scientific atheists um, who weren't looking out at the universe and its, and its pitiless indifference towards us. Who said it was pitilessly indifferent? That's your, you're supplying that meaning. And therefore, something that's pitiless, pitilessly indifferent is also something you might as well trash. Why not? What's, there's no value except what we have put into it. So try saying Sister Supernova or Brother Higgs Force, or you, all of a sudden there's more than just something to trash. Vulnerable to our meaning making is something that has its own beauty and its, its own imperative, you might say. It, it seems that there's a big difference in saying that th something is viewed as created, as you're saying, um, and, and has a built into it kind of reality from God as a, a gift from him, from him and as part of his gift is to say something is just part of an environment or just takes as present an environment or takes up space. And I, and I think that's a really important point that you've, that you've unpacked for us. We are speaking with John Cavadini. He is professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, one of the world's leading and distinguished scholars in the area of patristics. We're speaking with him about his fine article in Church Life Journal on the influence of St. Francis and St. Augustine on Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. In the encyclical, Dr. Cavadini, Pope Francis notes that modern anthropocentrism, and maybe we want to just unpack what that term means for our listeners, that does not view created things as good in and of themselves leads to the logic of the throwaway culture, including euthanasia and the sexual exploitation of children. But I wonder, do we value humans too much or too little? So it sort of cuts both ways. We can have an anthropocentrism, but at the same time, we don't really seem to respect human dignity. What's, what's going on there? Unpack that for us. Yeah, so that's a paradox that Pope Francis does treat in the encyclical, and it's, it's, largely, it's, it's been largely ignored as far as I can see in commentary on the encyclical. That's because it's, I think it, it has a solidly theological core, and people aren't as familiar with their theology anymore, maybe. But So anthropocentrism simply means um, a view of the universe centered on man, centered on anthropos, the human, the human being. Pope Francis' argument is the universe is not anthropocentric, it's theocentric in the end, it's centered on God. The idea here is, okay, excessive anthropocentrism, what that means is an anthropocentrism in which we're so central that everything has value to the extent that it has value to us and that all the meaning comes from us. We put the meaning in. So it means what we say it means and it's valuable insofar as we say it's valuable. So you could say then that why would there be any kind of throwaway culture that involves human beings if this is an anthropocentric and indeed an excessively anthropocentric view? It's because anthropocentrism never means all human beings altogether. It always means a class of human beings with power, right? So it's... Um, it's, it's the class of human beings with power that determines 
what's valuable and what's useful. And that ends up making the universe not just anthropocentric, but it depends on a, a certain class, race, or whatever centric, um, whereas everything else looks distant or indeed not valuable. But even more than that, there's also a way, and Pope Francis points this out, the way in which if you take de-anthropocentrizing our view, so throwing anthropocentrism out, if you take it to mean cutting human beings down to the level of all other aspects of nature, all other elements of nature, that's also wrong because it then deflects responsibility. Human beings have a level of being, which is rational, you know, spiritual, which means we also have accountability. And so if you level us out, then you also level out the accountability. If you make human beings just as much a, a cog in a deterministic universe as anything else in it, and so worth no more, no less, then you basically undercut the grounds for human accountability. Human dignity and human accountability are connected. So that accounts for the paradox of two ways of thinking about that paradox of excessive anthropocentrism, nevertheless involving the creation of human trash. In, in a way, we can, we can even simplify it more by saying if we want a true humanism, it requires a theocentric worldview as opposed to an anthropocentric worldview. That's exactly Pope Francis's view. You need a center. And if the center isn't God, the center is going to be whatever the most powerful people are say is the center. This idea that, you know, the sort of Baconian idea that we view creation as raw material, as datum to be manipulated, um, it seems that we've, rather than developed or evolved in our thinking, we've forgotten sort of ancient wisdom. How did we get there? How, do, how did this forgetting happen? And what do we need to do to remember this ancient wisdom of, of St. Augustine and St. Francis? In one sense, it's always being forgotten, right? I, I think we could say we've forgotten it now, but the reason Pope Francis you know, initiated his reform, and it was a reform, was because it was forgotten then. So, and the reason that St. Augustine you know, develops his theology of pride, which is a theology of excessive anthropocentrism, that's where Francis gets his idea of excessive anthropocentrism from Augustine's understanding of pride, it's because it's being forgotten. This pride, Augustine would say, is the original sin. And this inclination, let's say, towards excessive anthropocentrism is the original sin and is the recurring sin from which we always have to be woken up or always have to be reminded. And so the ancient wisdom, the biblical wisdom, which is then received in, in different ages, in the age of Augustine, certainly in the age of St. Francis, always has to be recovered and reinterpreted, rearticulated for a contemporary period, because every culture and every period is different, has different kinds of questions. But the doctrine of original sin means we're always slanted in one way or another towards that kind of excessive anthropocentrism. And we need, we're always forgetting, in other words. We're inclined to forget, and we need to be reminded. Pope Francis is one of the reminders, I would say, in our contemporary period. One of the phenomena of our age, as you mentioned, there's this constant forgetting and then new problems and new challenges. You know, even five or 10 years ago, the talk of transhumanism was, you know, just sort of science fiction, but now it's very much in the news, very present, ongoing discussion, things of that nature. And that doesn't, that gets a maybe a, a, a marginal nod in the encyclical, 
but it's it's at the very heart it seems of that sin of pride of that saint augustine talks about and pope francis talks about and that anthropocentrism but in an odd way it's not even an anthropocentrism focused on the person it's getting beyond nature getting beyond the human person so even transcending biological reality what lessons do francis and augustine have for us in this uh, attempt to even escape the limits of biological reality in the created order in general, this is where Augustine comes in handy because pride, what he calls pride, the word pride in English is relatively innocent. Um, we can be legitimately proud of things. The word pride superbia in Latin is a different story as Augustine interprets it. It's, it is excessive anthropocentrism, but it's the deepest excess is the desire to be the creator, right? To, to set all terms yourself, to be completely self-interpreting and self-referential. So to, in a sense, to talk about transhumanism in this particular sense is to talk about, is to talk about being the creator, is to talk about being self-created, is to talk about, it's an ideology of absolute self-sufficiency where meaning comes only from, from us, where the dimensions of being come from us, where what is human or what is better than human comes from us. It's a little bit like uh, Mary Wallenstorff, uh, Shelley's Frankenstein. That novel is so prescient because it's so interesting how the scientist Frankenstein images in a way the creator of Genesis. Only he leaves a lot of things out, right? For example, he forgets that the God in Genesis said, it's not good for man to be alone. And one thing the creature holds against him is that he has no wife and no possibility for companionship, which shows you that Frankenstein didn't create out of care and affection. He created out of the desire to dominate, the desire to replace the creator. And it's an image of Augustinian pride. And Pope Francis captures it in these various expressions. It's not just excessive, it's tyrannical anthropocentrism. He calls it at one point extreme anthropocentrism. So it's the, at bottom, the desire to be completely self-sufficient, to supply all meaning, to be the, to create oneself, which is, in the end, you recognize it as nihilism. It's nihilism to say that all meaning comes from us. And it's also, in the end, a form of classism or something like that, because it's never all of us. It's always one group. Dr. Cavadini, You've been generous with your time today. I've just got one last question for you, which is Laudato Si is so rich. It's very very lengthy, but it's very rich. And But it's been written off in many places, both right and left, as the climate change encyclical. And that's supposed to be the cash value. That's that 20-page section toward the beginning where Pope Francis talks about climate change. But there's a lot more going on there. Beyond the global climate control issues that Pope Francis is even talking about right now, there was a recent conference in Scotland about those things. What other implications might the encyclical have for our activity in the social and political arena or public policy more general outside of the specific climate change discussion? The point of the encyclical was try to locate the discussion of of climate change in a larger discussion. And that's what was most resisted, I think, by the commentators on the left and the right. They took it up front as a set of policy recommendations. In a sense, the church has the responsibility to comment on contemporary culture, 
but the church's primary responsibility is evangelization, as Pope Francis himself has repeated many times, and is therefore getting people to see the broader context in which a policy conversation is occurring. And that's precisely what he's getting to do, because he's trying to make people see from both right-wing and left-wing political persuasions that what's at stake here is a question that cannot be resolved simply by technology and policy, because it's a question that affects human hearts. It's a question that affects the deepest motivations of human culture. And it's those deep motivations that religion is competent to speak to and about, that a particular Christian revelation offers light on. And what he's saying is, if you keep the conversation sequestered from these deeper, from these deeper resonances, you will not get anywhere. You will get nowhere. The best you can hope for is a totalitarian state which imposes everything and which most people will not give their allegiance to anyway. He doesn't say that, though the idea of excessive anthropocentrism tends to lead that way because it's never just all people. But anyway, the whole point was to relocate it so people could see the urgency of taking up the deeper questions. And somehow we seem resistant. You know, when people talk about religious freedom, sometimes the discussion is too narrow. It should sometimes focus on what Pope Francis is trying to get us to see that religion is competent to and talks about and talks from the depth dimension. And when you lose that deeper dimension, when you even lose the awareness of it, you're left only with the, with the level of policy, the level of politics, and the problem is too deep to be solved there, which is not to say the church is not involved on that level. But, and we certainly are. <laughs> right. But it's but the contribution of the encyclical was not primarily on that level, nor was it intended to be. And that's a great way to end that the church's public policy advocacy is rooted in proclamation, conversion, and evangelization. So th th thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Cavadini. Where can people go to learn more about your work and, and the work of Church Life Journal and the McGrath Institute? You know, I'm not a very good advertiser because I should have the website like right off the top of my I can't. But if if you Google Church Life Journal or McGrath Institute, you'll come up with all the stuff. So. Outstanding. Thank you so much for your contribution to uh, Catholic theological and intellectual life. And we're grateful to have you on the Bridge Builder today. Yeah, thanks so much for your interest. I appreciate it. Wonderful. And that article again, uh, Church Life Journal, The Influence of St. Francis and St. Augustine on Pope Francis's encyclical La Autopsy. Dr. Cavadini, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our practical action item. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And now it's time to reconnect with Kit to talk about this week's action item. Yeah, so relating directly to the conversation you just had, we want to redirect everyone to the resources we have on Laudato Si for bringing it home. Uh, we have our document called Minnesota, Our Common Home, that includes a study guide. It includes a full text document and a great little resource, an ecological examine. So you can find all of those resources by going to mncatholic.org forward slash our common home. And we want to encourage people to join a small group. Maybe it's once a month 
Maybe it's once a week for six weeks. You could stretch it out over this winter. Jason, can you give people an idea of what they might expect by joining a small group? Well, just a really op a real opportunity to dig into a theologically rich and, and important document, not only just for the social and political life of our world, but also for our own personal conversion. As Dr. Cavadini described, the document's three parts, a crisis of nature, what's the problem? Second part, ecological conversion, what's needed? And then part three, uh, integral ecology, practical steps that we can do to promote an integral ecology to protect our common home, but also build a healthy human ecology as well. So really important principles for our lives. And in, if we read the signs of the times, as the Second Vatican Council calls us to do, the ecological crisis um, is front and center of many conversations. And this provides a pathway and a roadmap for really navigating that in a in a way that's also very accessible as well. Pope Francis's encyclical is about 200 pages. This is less than 20. So a nice way to jump into that conversation through Minnesota, Our Common Home, which again, people can find at mncatholic.org forward slash Our Common Home. Wonderful. So that's all we have time for this week. Once again, a very packed show. Thanks for tuning in. If you are listening on the radio, make sure to also catch us on your favorite podcast app or check us out on the YouTube channel for any of our extended conversations. When you're there, make sure to click subscribe so you'll always be notified of our latest episodes and then leave us any comments or questions or send an email to show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Builder program today. We'll be back again with another great guest, more of your comments and questions and new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. A very blessed day.